0: Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, that's not a TV show. But it is. But it is. It It is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. <laughs> Commodore <laughs> Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever. Whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams other than a Viewmaster. You download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge, there's no Patreon, there's no Electronic Frontier. All there is, is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. You must learn to listen to The Rebel and the Rogue, or
1: you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan.
2: If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny
0: Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes
2: available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, Available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this
1: is Mark A. Alton. And this is Darren Dockerman. And we are the Inglorious
0: Experts. That worked. We, we, sort of. <laughs> Outside the studio, how how difficult we find that to do in sync. But uh, anyway, you get the point. It's the Inglorious Experts, And we're here with, um, once again, uh, returning guest, Ashley Miller, writer of Thor and X-Men for- Class. Uh, he is a writer, producer, such as Black Sales and Terminator: The Sarah Connor Chronicles. Welcome, back, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Such enthusiasm. Oh, and enthusiasm. Enthusiasms. Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. <laughs> and uh, welcome back. Uh, he is on loan from the Burnett work. The man, the myth, the legend. A man who is a self-proclaimed read every Star Trek novel ever published. Uh, it is Robert Meyer Burnett. Welcome back, Rob. Mark, this
3: is the show that I've wanted to do for so long. I got two of my heroes here that are going to be guests on this show. I cannot wait to to just wax rhapsodic about their work. Uh, I've never actually spoken to either one of them directly, and I am overjoyed to be here
0: today. Well, you know, Rob, the week we're recording this is your birthday. So consider this a very happy birthday <laughs> gift, experts, uh, um, knowing how, you know, passionate that you are ever since you first read Spock Must Die, Lo, those many days. Uh, year, Island Park Elementary School. I took it out you, of the library. There you go. And in case you haven't guessed, today's subject is going to be something we want to do for a while, actually Star Trek novels. Star Trek novels. And uh, to celebrate and to talk about that and the, the long history of this publishing program that has gone from bantam to pocketbook it's been a huge success many bestsellers we have uh two of the greatest star trek novelists um and they are mr dayton ward dayton of course is uh editor and writer of strange new worlds he's done most recently the kirk fu manual much uh dear to our hearts uh the core of engineers series and uh, tons of books in the star trek universe and um Also, uh, we are thrilled to have with us, and he has a new book coming out. You have a new book coming out this June, Agents of Influence, which is uh, returning to the TOS universe, which is exciting. And uh, with him is David Mack. Uh, David um, has uh, contributed the stories to two uh, great DS9 episodes, particularly It's Only a Paper Moon. I know Ashley's giddy over that. Um, And, of course, has done a ton of Star Trek novels in the TNG universe, the Episodes 9, the Mirror universe. Uh, he is the writer of Star Trek Destiny, and he has the, the first Star Trek Discovery book, uh, Desperate Hours. Not the Humphrey Bogart movie the, uh, or the Mickey Rourke remake. It's the uh, Discovery book, Desperate Hours. So anyway, guys, welcome. Thank you for uh, joining us on this special uh, COVID-19 self-quarantine episode of Inglorious Experts."
2: Thank you for having us on. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having us. I'm just sitting here in awe of your hair, Mark. I'm really trying to figure out how I can duplicate that style. You know,
0: I, I'm a big Jack Nance fan from a race. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to, you know, cosplay as Jack Nance. It's
1: half Jack Nance, half Barton Fink. Yeah, I
0: was just thinking
4: Barton Fink. <laughs>
0: Anyway, you know it's it's it is what it is. So, uh, I and 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 as I've, I've said to other people, at least I got here. So, sure. go.
2: yeah,
0: we do, we all do. So it's good. Uh, you know, I'm not going for the Telly Savalas or now. I guess they're calling it the Doug Drexler
4: look. <laughs> <laughs> well just let himself go,
2: has he? <laughs> oh, no, he did a on camera shaving incident of some sort right
3: <laughs> no he went full-on cisco man he looks great yeah. he shaved his head and has a goatee
0: he looks amazing yeah.
2: a man called drex, right. a man called, a man called drex. Go, go
0: drex right that's right so tell me i want to go back to sort of the beginning i know how seminal those early star trek novels were for many of us and, and look in retrospect they weren't particularly great um uh how you know how dare lot- you well, a lot of us grew up on, well, you're going to make a case for Spock. All right, we're out of here.
4: <laughs> Dude,
3: Kathleen Skye's Vulcan, man. That thing rips. Come on.
0: You want to make a case for Spock Messiah? I'm all ears. So, and all hair. But uh, the, um, my, my, my question to you is, you know, did you start on sort of the James Blish novels? I mean, you know, and, and what was it that maybe sparked your, your, your passion in uh, Star Trek novels? And Star Trek for that extent, to that extent.
2: You want to go first, Dave? you got it. You go. Okay. Well, I mean, I—if I'm not mistaken—I think Rob and I are pretty much the same age. I think we're like a month apart in birthday. We are. I noticed that uh, you're June, and we're the same age. Yeah. So we probably have very similar experiences with the show, with the original show. I watched the reruns after school. I watched the cartoon on Saturday. In fact, I didn't even know it was a color show. Until like the late 70s because I had a black and white TV. Um, So I played with the comic or played with the Mego figures and built the models and shot my eyes out with those tracer guns and all that stuff that you did back in the 70s. But uh, my first reading of Star Trek was the oddball gold key comic and the Blish novelizations Mm -hmm. that I got from the library. Or, you know, you found the oddball cover at uh, at Woolworths, the spinner rack at Woolworths. So that was my induction into Trek fiction. And then the, the few novels that Bantam put out. Uh, during that period before the first movie, uh, that's how I got into it. And by the time the first movie came along, I was probably, the hooks were in deep. So I was buying whatever I could find. And it's been a sickness that has gone untreated since then. <laughs> so, you and I had the exact same upbringing.
4: Yeah. did and I tell pretty much the same story. Grew up watching the syndicated reruns in the seventies, reading the blish books, um, and then, of course, Star Trek The Motion Picture cemented the fandom. I was one of those kids who had the cutaway Enterprise poster up on my ceiling, and I had memorized all of its interior so I could mentally walk through the interior of the refit Enterprise in my imagination as if it were a real place. You can't right. see it
1: because of my virtual
2: background, but it's behind me. I
4: was going to say, Yay. he still has it over his
2: bed. <laughs> Dave still has that poster hanging over his bed. He just oh, I wish that. I did. I- it <laughs> fell
4: apart a long time ago. I wish I still had it. It was beautiful.
0: You can, so everybody has the refits. Yeah, I, I still have my Franz Joseph uh, blueprints in case oh, I yeah. didn't find the bowling alley. But um, it was uh, it's pretty it's pretty spectacular. And I think what people forget is there was a joy in the scarcity of what we had as kids. Yeah, you know there wasn't a lot of it. So when it, it was a Star Trek item came out, it was truly you know a thrill. Plus, I mean, as kids and without the internet, you didn't really know. So you'd walk into a bookstore or Woolworths and suddenly you see the technical manual or something and you'd be like blown away that this thing even existed.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talk about Doug Drexler. I used to beg my mother for the dollar that it required to buy the poster book right? that yeah. he and Jeff Mandel put together. Yeah. She was like, I don't understand. In fact, my mother never understood why I enjoyed it. And once I started getting paid to write Star Trek stories, she couldn't believe I can't believe they pay you to write that crap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she was supportive of me, but she was like, "I can't believe they pay to write that
0: stuff." You know? Well, but that was a good investment—that dollar that she would give you. You know, it
2: led to a life, a lifelong career. She, she was an enabler. She bought stuff for me at the school book fair, like the Gold Key compilations and the blish books. So she started it. She just didn't want to take credit for it. What for was she- blame?
0: What was your feeling when, once you got past the Blish stuff uh, and started reading some of those early Bantam novels, you know, like uh, Mud's Angels and Galactic Whirlpool? And uh, obviously, you know, certainly, you know, in the case of the original Blish adaptations, he was just writing them based on scripts, hadn't even seen the show, you know. So uh, do you remember kind of what your takeaway was about this whole bizarre world of st- trick fiction at the time?
2: I remember Spock Messiah being quite the eye opener (laughs) to this 10 year old Star Trek fan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Dave, what do you think?
4: I actually never read any of those early books.
2: Oh, okay. My first real
4: experience with tie in fiction around that time was Alan Dean Foster's splinter of the mind's eye. Sure. Uh, And of course the Lucas uh, adaptation of the star Wars uh, script, you know, the star (laughs) Wars tie in novel. So I had that and then I had splinter and, uh, the Blish books, of course, but I didn't actually pick up any of the Star Trek tie in novels during their sort of 80s uh, glorious pulp heyday. Uh, I think actually the first one I was uh, given when I had sort of expressed an interest in finding out more about the Trek novel, somebody gave me a copy of Bimzadi by mm-hmm. Peter David. Mm. And that was sort of my entree point. And I was like, because before that, I'd had sort of the science fiction fan. Stigma bias. I had inherited that stigma of, oh, the tie in novels. Well, you know, those are going to be dragged. There's no imagination there, yada, 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 which of course is completely wrong. And I didn't realize that until somebody handed me MZADI and I went, wait a minute, you mean to tell me tie in novels can be like this? They can do stuff like this? Oh, hell, I want in on this. Now I want to be part of it. So uh, Peter David is heavily to blame for the fact that I'm a tie in author. He made me want to do it. And then Keith DeCandido and John Ordover bear some blame for actually enabling me to do it. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I remember
2: I read, I don't know that I read all the Bantam novels when they were originally published. Because again, you know, availability was an issue at that age because you just couldn't go to the bookstore like you can now. And I don't know that there were any actual bookstores where I lived at that point in time. I was living on Long Island. Um, So it was Woolworths or whatever the corner store was. But by the time the first movie came along, you had Walden Books and B. Daltons and I picked up the first few Pocket novels. So Vonda McIntyre, she wrote one which I still think is one of the best ones ever done called The Entropy Effect. It was the very first Pocket novel that or the first original Trek novel that Pocket put out. And that was like Dave, you know, this is a this is a way better Star Trek story than some of the episodes. I don't I and to say that out loud seems blasphemous, but its I think we all agree <laughs> that there were <was> some <laughs> dogs in the original show. And the Children Shall Lead, i cu- if I could find a way to cut that out of Blu-ray so I never have to see it again, I'd be okay with it. Uh, but that was my growth period. And I kept reading them even after I left home. And it was hard to find them, but I found them at you know the base bookstore or wherever. So I kept going, and then they kind of fell into a rut in the late 80s, early 90s when the restrictions for the writers were at their most heinous, where they, like they had the most restrictive set of guidelines for what you could and could not do with a Star Trek novel. And then they sort of had a Renaissance period in the late nineties that they continued, I guess you could say it's continued to this day, but that's when you saw a line of demarcation in my eyes, in terms of quality and depth of storytelling mm-hmm. and, and, and the potential that we could do with Star Trek. Uh, we have John Ordover to thank for that.
0: Before we get to that, I just for our audience that maybe isn't as familiar, the Banted program, you know, on the heels of the original series, and of course, that famous kids book, uh, Mission to Horatius, mm-hmm. sort of ushered in Star Trek um, for, uh, for everyone. Uh, and uh, to say there could be a more non canon book than Mission to Horatius. <laughs> uh, actually, I wish I I pulled them out. There are a great deal a whole bunch of memos uh, contemporary with the publication of that book from John Meredith Lucas and uh, from Gene, uh, who had nothing to do with reviewing the book and there's, Uhura, you know, chanting Negro spirituals and there's uh, all kinds of crazy non-canon stuff going on in that book. And it was sort of at that point, very early on, you know, towards the end of the original series run, second, end of second season at least um, that they realized they needed to have more of an eye over licensing. Because um, this was so far uh, afield from what they were doing. And, you know, at the same time, James Blish was adapting, uh, you know, various scripts, um, which is why so many of the um, deleted scenes ended up in these novels, because he was going off script stuff that was cut. So uh, Bantam, which was uh, the editor, was the famous sci-fi writer, Fred Pohl. And of course, Fred really was not interested in the Star Trek series, but um It made them a lot of money for a long time and was very exciting. And then Bantam, of course, lost the license eventually in the mid 70s and uh, Pocket picked it up and launched their timescape as uh, the guys say with a series with um, the entropy effect by Vonda McIntyre on the heels of the Star Trek, the motion picture novelization. Can we
5: talk about that for a second? The entropy effect and just its relationship to the Star Trek motion picture novelization. Because for me, um, the first Star Trek novel that I read was the novelization, right? And all of a sudden it's like, you know, they're like, and like Um, But the entropy effect like feels like it was very influenced by what Roddenberry did in that novelization, right? Because Sulu is like, you know, he's space hippies and like you've got the cover and everybody's kind of got the long hair. There was just something about like that whole book, great as it was that was like very counterculture in a way that I felt that the novelization of the motion picture actually suggested. And I don't know that there was ever another Star Trek novel, even by Vonda McIntyre, that felt quite like the entropy effect. Um, but, you know, when I read that, when I was like 10 years old, mm-hmm. uh, it kind of blew my mind. Is it? Was it, it was both Star Trek, and yet it was like, oh, this is like, star trek after hours you I know mean, it, it was
0: odd for me rob i wonder if you can before we leave the bantam era and 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 move to pocket which has done such a marvelous job with the star trek novels sort to sum up for us your experience reading those those books because of course there were some really bizarre things going on there was the myrna Culbreth, which oh, was
3: the price of the phoenix and the fate of the phoenix yeah i, I think one of the, here's the thing and i was wondering what 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 you guys uh, dayton and and uh Mr. Mack, what you, you, would, you would think about this, but uh, David, you came to it later, but when I was reading Star Trek novels, there was the thought that there was never going to be any more Star Trek. So when you were reading the Bantam books, i never made any kind of distinction that these were not canonical. These were just new Star Trek stories that I figured since they're being published, they're sanctioned by someone. And I was a kid so whether you're reading The Starless World or whether you were reading The Galactic Whirlpool, which David Gerald himself wrote, or the cra- crazy Myrna Colbraith and Stinder Marshak books with the fate and pride of the uh, Price of the Phoenix, and then their absolutely insane pocketbook triangle that I still can't tell you what it's about. But uh, I mean, in my mind, what this was doing was expanding the Star Trek universe beyond the bounds of the television screen and because there was a lot of science fiction concepts that they couldn't deal with or they couldn't show on television, I think the idea of what Star Trek could be was sort of shown to me in those, in those books. And some of them obviously weren't the best in the world, you know, um, World Without End and uh, Joe Haldeman, you know, writing some stuff there. But uh, I, it, it was interesting and unique and it changed my view of what a Star Trek story could be. And uh, that was something interesting. And I never made the distinction between the two. I mean, the the Galactic Whirlpool seemed like an episode of Space 1999 to me as opposed to a Star Trek episode. But, but it wasn't until we made that transition to when there, there seemed to be the entropy effect was the first book because Pocket began this program that I felt that there was there was a direction for Star Trek fiction that was embarked upon that was being curated really for the first time. Cause each book in the Bantam era was so wacky and different. I felt like it was not like I'm watching the show. It was, it was, every one of these was sort of haphazard and the stories were all over the place. But when I read the the entropy effect, one of the things that I thought was really interesting and I never, I never forgot it was how starship combat was depicted. And there were these scenes when Sulu was, they were doing these simulations when, when starships could tumble end over end and how zero gravity combat in the XYZ axis would work and things like that. And I remember thinking, wow, this is what Star Trek needed, but they couldn't show. And there was a legitimacy to those books that in my mind that the Star Trek franchise needed or in, in my mind it already had legitimacy, but because I was reading lots of other science fiction at the time, When pocketbooks took over, suddenly the publishing end of Star Trek became just as legitimate to me as anything I'd seen on the screen. And I never made distinctions after that. A good Star Trek story to me was a good Star Trek story. And the
0: books were delivering. Yeah, that's a great point, Rob. And, you know, David mentioned um, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. And in a way, Spock's brain, Spock Must Die was the splinter of the mind's eye of the Star Trek universe. A lot of people misunderstood they. Thought, oh, this is going to be, if they ever continue Star Trek, the next story, which of course, that was never the intention. The same way Splinter the Mind's Eye, many people thought was going to be The Empire Strikes Back, not understanding that it was an original novel. Um, now, there are two things I think that are significant from that era that, that carry on past, because most of it's very disposable, you know, pulp fiction, you know, most of those stories. I mean, we talked about Morshak and Colbrith and that came from their fanzine KS stories, Got you know turned into novels, but um, really the John Ford final reflection is significant because Ron Moore was hugely influenced by it in developing the Klingons for Next Generation, and then uh, that wonderful New Voyages collection, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure was a huge influence on you, Dayton, uh, and the the one story in particular, well, two that I think remained significant, Mind Sifter, which became part of the canon, and then also um, Reflections. What was it called? To to a small journey to a small
3: planet revisited,
0: right. Galaxy Quest, in which uh, Shatner, Nimoy, and D. Kelly find themselves on board the Enterprise, in real in, in the real Enterprise, not the set. Um, and I think those things sort of endure past interest and curiosities. Would you agree with that, Darren? Oh, absolutely.
1: Um, I, I was going to say, while I was listening to Rob talk about it, um, it seems to me that certainly in the early uh, years of uh, uh, Star Trek novels, um, they provided a, a necessary... Uh, testing ground and, uh, and safety net for creativity in the Star Trek universe. Because you could absolutely go, you know, press the, the boundaries of the envelope, as it were, uh, and sort of try and expand on what Star Trek was, and still have the safety of it not, quote, being real, you know, it, it, it was, it, it was uh, the chance to sort of go off on these tangents, and explore strange new stories and, and stuff like that, and still not have it bound by, you know, the the visual canon at that point. And I think that was a great time for uh, learning what, you know, what would stretch Star Trek and what would break it and, and uh, uh, you know, how it could move uh, in, into the future.
0: Now, David, you talked about John Ordover, and, of course, John was vital in sort of the pocket, you know, program for a long time. Can you talk about sort of bringing the importance of Canon and that early pocket, those early pocket books, why they're significant and sort of how that evolved to what you guys are doing today with the um,
4: Star Trek line? Well, the early pocket era predates John Ordover. That would have been like the uh, Kevin Ryan, Dave Stern era. And I think there were even other editors whose names i never even learned. Uh, By the time John got involved they were starting to move beyond that. John was one of the champions for trying to push the line into new original ideas, to go beyond merely being a tie-in that would try to fill in gaps within the canon continuity and would try to forge out on uh, on its own and sort of break new ground. There was a lot of resistance to that through the 90s Uh, mostly due to uh, the fact that you had Star Trek going strong on television again, starting from 1987 with Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, I guess they wanted to make sure everybody stayed in line, the licensors stayed in line. And so it was tricky to try and get them to say, well, you can go beyond uh, merely being you know, the, the, the tie-in arm. And a lot of the credit for that goes to John and to Peter David. Uh, a lot of what the Star Trek book line is today, or has been, I should say, for the past 20 years, we owe to John J. Ordover and Peter David because together they created the Star Trek New Frontier series. And the concept was a new literary original series Set contemporaneously to the 24th century shows that were on the air at that time, they had a blend of some minor characters who they had borrowed from the shows, but that the shows were likely to not come back to. People like Robin Leffler, uh, for instance, getting uh, borrowed in, um, and then they created new characters. Mackenzie Calhoun, uh, Peter David created the Brickar species uh, with Zach Kebron. Uh, he created his Thelonian Empire, and he sort of created his own little corner of the Star Trek tie universe that was his to play in, the fallen remains of the Thelo- uh, Thelonian Empire and all of its constituent worlds that are now in open rebellion and civil war or whatever. So it's this very fertile ground. At the time, there was a lot of resistance from the uh, licensor, from CBS, from Star Trek. They were saying, who's going to want to buy Star Trek books or Star Trek stories that aren't about the Star Trek characters they already know? That's why people buy Star Trek books. They want more about Kirk, Spock, McCoy. They want more about Picard and his crew. They want more DS9 stories. They want more Voyager stories. Why why are they going to buy this? Who's going to buy this? John and uh, Peter said, trust us. And they were allowed to take a gamble. They put out the first four short novels. And thanks in part to Peter David's popularity and the fact that he had a pretty big audience that he brought with him, but also just to the fact that it was something new and very fresh and irreverent and different, it found an audience. And it proved that there was a market for original Star Trek stories set in the Star Trek universe, but not necessarily directly based on or derivative from the existing shows and movies and that opened up all sorts of possibilities and i want to ask you a question about you know ever since
0: harv Bennett brought back con well even before that even if you look at the animated series sequels to shore leave and sequels to trouble with Tribbles, there, there's a hunger among star trek fans to see more of the same right to see char- beloved characters and 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 it happens a lot in the comic books it happens a lot uh, you know, in a lot of the novels, even going back to, you know, early stuff like A.C. Crispin's Yesterday's Son, which is a sequel to All Our Yesterdays. um How much pressure is there to balance sort of boldly going new ideas with also sort of, uh, you know, the greatest hits?
4: Well, I think it depends on what you're working on. If you're doing a TNG novel, uh, you are expected to feature the TNG characters who are still essential to that story. Uh, but as we've built-in new original characters, you want to give them some time, too. Uh, Dayton, what's your thought on that matter?
2: I don't know that there's anything like pressure. Um, they've been very supportive of us, particularly like Dave says in the last 20 or so years. And we have to give Paula Block her due credit as well for the early yes. going when when uh, John and Peter proposed a New Frontier, because she was the one who was running the show at what was then called Viacom Licensing. And she greenlit new frontier and let john and peter run with it and so she was also a big supporter of things like strange new worlds writing program and a couple of the other initiatives that were put forth once we proved that new frontier was going to be a thing Um, but as far as pressure from licensing to do this or do that we've never been told you have to do these kinds of stories you have to do that kind of story there's the unwritten rule that we ought to maintain consistency with what's been established we have to honor you know a particular show and a set of characters but in terms of the original stuff that we've been allowed to do and particularly when nemesis was the last next-gen film and they kind of let us off the chain with things to do with those characters after they stopped making next-gen movies and they stopped making tv series for a while they were very supportive um they in fact were big champions of things like the vanguard novels mm-hmm. uh, which that was- is an original series that
3: Go was ahead, something Ron, well I wanted to ask you guys about those because following on the heels of New Frontier, the two of you and a, a number of other authors did create the Vanguard series, which was obviously, I guess you would say, set concurrently with the original series, that yep. era. And yet it was it was you were you were extrapolating on things that we knew and we loved, but then you guys were working in tandem and created what I thought was a, a wonderful uh series of novels that you had it was a mix of things that we knew and things that were we didn't know, and and you guys work with multiple authors, and the two of you were were two of the central architects of that series. And how did I'm that gonna come Dave. about?
2: I'm going to let Dave take this one because this is his baby. Uh, him yeah. and Marco put this together.
4: Yeah the uh, the creating uh, the creation of the series was myself and Marco Palmieri. He initiated the project as its editor. He had the original idea of wanting to do a story or a series set contemporaneous, set at the same time as the original series, but with new characters, new situations, new settings. What he wanted to do was show that the events that we saw on screen in the original series had effects uh, elsewhere in the Star Trek universe. And at the same time, things going on elsewhere in the Star Trek universe informed and influenced what we saw on screen in TOS, that there was a give and take of history behind the scenes that we weren't privy to. And so the idea was to try and build the series along those lines, to think about where was Star Trek history at that point, what was going on off screen and what was the give and take between them. And I was brought in when Marco first had the generic idea. He wanted there to be a space station out on the frontier, a star base. He wanted there to be more than one ship involved. He didn't want the usual mix of character types. He didn't want another captain, first officer, chief medical officer, Star Trek setup. He wanted something different. He wanted the Commodore who is in charge of the Starbase and commanding fleet operations for a whole sector. He wanted an intelligence officer who was coordinating all sorts of secret goings-on in the sector. He wanted civilian points of view. He wanted a reporter uh, he, he wanted an A&A officer, the archaeology and anthropology officer, <clears throat> to be part of an ongoing scientific mystery. But beyond that, he didn't specify what he wanted any of these things to be, what he wanted them to add up to, where he wanted the mystery to go. For that, he recruited me, fresh off the heels of my first two Star Trek paperbacks, A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal, which were published in 2004. So he brought me in and said, I'd like you to write the series Bible. And I put together a, basically a 30-page series Bible. I came up with the overall series concept for Vanguard, what the series was about, what the meta story was, how it tied into that whole era of Star Trek history, and what it eventually would lead to. Uh, I detailed all the major and uh, characters and then all the primary supporting characters, all their interpersonal dynamics. Uh, I talked about the politics of the day, I detailed the ships. Uh, we had Maseo Okazaki uh, design the station interiors and then design some schematics for our little scout ship, the Sagittarius. And from that, I was asked by Marco originally, he said, I want this to be a multi-author series, so try and come up with story ideas that could play to the strengths of a variety of writers. So I tried to do that at first, thinking in terms of, all right, if I'm writing the leadoff book, then book two, if it goes in this direction, that would be a good fit for Dayton and Kevin. And I thought, well, this idea for book three could be a good fit for someone like James Swallow. This one could be a good fit for David R. George. This could be a good fit for Kirsten Beyer. Um, And so I sort of planned out an arc of six to eight books, maybe, uh, possibly expanding to as many as 10. And we went forward. I wrote the first book. And because I had rigged the deck so that Dayton and Kevin were the only logical choices for book two, uh, he brought them in as a team to write book two. And by that point I was so intrigued by the directions that they had taken what I'd started with and some of the new ideas they'd brought to the table, that I all but begged Marco to let me come back and play for book three. So he let me write book three. And at that point he saw that there was an interesting dynamic forming with me writing books on one side and Dayton and Kevin as a team, writing on the other. And by putting us into artistic conversation and a little game of one-upmanship with each other, uh, we just kept pushing each other to newer heights, to think bigger, to think deeper, to come up with fresher ideas, uh, or by deliberately torpedoing each other's ideas, forcing each (laughs) other to come up with new ones, Uh, and just messing with each other in general. At least that's what we did for like the first four or five books. Um, I want to ask your process in terms, both of you, in terms
0: of uh, pitching a new book. Obviously, it's changed. You know, I assume you have to do a lot less when you're bringing uh, the publisher a new book. And, and your process in terms of writing and how long it usually takes you to do one of these novels. So talk, talk to us a little bit about process in terms of uh, how it works for you doing a novel. And obviously, doing a TOS novel is very different than maybe doing discovery of a record novel because of the huge
2: amount of backstory that exists
4: i've been yakking. why are you go, aiden okay well i mean the, the general
2: process that would apply across the board is that um an author would submit an outline or a pitch to pocketbooks or, or the you know it, the editor um usually through an agent because they don't accept unsolicited uh proposals um for one of the shows and you know it'll go it'll get batted around by that editor and then if if the editor thinks there's this thing has some legs then they'll pass on up to licensing and licensing will weigh in on it and decide yay or nay. Uh at that point um the author will be given a contract and a deadline and all that. Um for the more established folks like David and myself it, the process is slightly different because usually it starts with a, an email or a phone call. Hey I need a original series book for 2020. What do you got? come up with something come back with me in a month with an outline (laughs) that's that's how that starts um uh, for things like and that's you know there was a long time where that was the case because there wasn't active star trek um no films no television shows uh now that discovery and picard and other secret hideout productions are are underway to varying degrees of whatever you want to believe on the internet um the process involves them if it's one of those shows. So if you, you know, they, they are usually looking for specific types of stories. They want highlights on specific characters. Um, if you've noticed from watching the shows, they don't really leave a lot of gaps between episodes for continuity filler. Uh, they're serialized and very tightly written together. So there's not a lot of opportunity between episodes. um, so there's a lot more coordination with the with with the secret hideout folks in terms of tie-ins to those shows. How much? But back, for traditional, how ahead. much back and forth uh,
1: can there be? Uh, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, between uh, the writers on the on the various shows and you guys, in, in terms of, uh, uh, do you exchange ideas sometimes, or do you get do you get uh, heads up on stuff that you can incorporate into your current books?
2: for Discovery, because Dave and I have each written a discovery novel. Uh there was a lot of back and forth with uh, specifically Kirsten Beyer. Mm-hmm. Uh mm-hmm. she was our liaison for that side of the table. And, you know, I love her like my big sister. She's slightly older than me, but don't don't let her say that out loud. <laughs> uh don't let her say that I said that. Um so there was a lot of coordination with no, her. No, she's actually my age. She's younger than you. Is she? I thought I was old she's I my age. she was younger. All right, well I'm still going no, with that she's... story. I'm going with that story. She was my older sister. Um yeah. That's my life.
4: You know, oh, she has wisdom beyond her years. She
2: has wisdom beyond her years. There you go. All right. we Nice save, Dave. Um, so there was a lot of coordination with her and she had some specific ideas about both our books during the early development. Um, but she gave us room to run mm-hmm. to develop our ideas so that we come up with a storyline. Um, for those shows. Yes. There's a lot of coordination with, or for those books, there's a lot of coordination with, with her specifically. Right. Um, for the stuff like next gen original series and, and other legacy Trek titles, it's not that involved because secret hideouts not involved in those.
5: But what about things like in, um, in discovery and in the, the second season, the, the AI that turned out to be such a problem, um, that very Control. much, uh, for, for many people felt like it had, it had first emerged from the novels. I mean, how much of that, um, do you guys feel, feel happening in the shows, how much of an influence are you feeling um, from just the approach of the novels to how Star Trek stories are told and discovery
4: and Picard? I mean, I don't think they pay that much attention to us for the most part control came to their attention because while they were trying to discuss or trying to dream up where they were going with season two and the kind of arcs and antagonists they wanted to bring in, Kirsten Bayer happened to mention to them, well, if you're doing Section 31, this is some stuff that has been done in the books. She merely meant that to be illustrative, to say, you know, here's some ideas of where we've gone in the past and we can build on this. Uh, and as it happened, they said, well, then we can uh, do something like that. And so they pretty much lifted the idea of the malevolent AI named control. Uh, and ran with it, their interpretation was slightly different than mine, of course, that's gonna happen during any story development process, but it was you know Kirsten told me she did introduce that idea into the mix, and that's how that happened. Uh, it's also ironic to me uh that a bit I just finished watching season two of Discovery the other day. Uh, I know I'm a bit late coming around to it, but I'm watching their season two finale where the torpedo, the unexploded torpedo gets stuck in the hull of the Enterprise, and they send an admiral down to defuse a torpedo stuck in the hull. And I thought to myself, this seems familiar. Wait wait a minute, where have I seen this shtick before? Wait a minute. This was in my episode. This was in Starship Down of Deep Space Nine. This was my episode! (laughs) So I've, I've had little moments of having to laugh at the the echoes of my work that show up on screen sometimes but for the most part they don't coordinate with us they if they lift ideas from us it's their right they own it all lock stock and barrel so they anything of course that they want
0: once you get the assignment to write a book uh, a novel basically what's your process going forward and usually how
2: long does it take for you to do uh, um, a novel I start with a visit to my local package store,
4: mm-hmm. and I restock
2: my shelf. Um, and then I develop an outline. Uh, and 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 you know, every author's process is different. My my process is I tend to basically write out a very long synopsis of what I think my book is going to be. Um, it usually runs about fifteen pages unless I'm working with Dave and then the process becomes much more detailed and elaborate and, and
4: focused. And he actually pushes me hey, to work can be as sloppy <laughs> as you want to be. I just, uh, I have precision on my side.
2: He's got laser focus when he does his outlines, uh, elevates our game. But so I, I pitch that to back to my editor and we bat it around and she fixes, you know, any question or she asks me whatever questions she's going to have. And then once we get it to where we think CBS will approve it, uh, it goes there Uh, They may or may not have questions. Uh, They may or may not have requests. You know, I got to tweak this. I got to tweak that, be aware of this. We're doing something similar on a show, that kind of thing. But once I get the green light, I usually get about three to four months to actually write the manuscript on average, mostly four. And then in a crunch, it can be three. It just depends on where I fall in the production schedule. Um, That's the average. I mean, that's the, and then of course, after I write it, there's editing and copy editing and uh, back and forth, and so the whole process probably takes the better part of 12 to 18 months from idea to on your bookshelf.
4: Yeah, my my process is about the same. I, it's always a crapshoot how long outlining and story development takes, because that's really what the hard work is story development, the plotting, making sure the idea makes sense from start to finish, because you have to have a relatively detailed outline for both the editor and the licensor they need to have a very clear picture narratively of what you're doing what the character arcs are how characters are going to grow and change and they need that level of detail so they can assess whether or not any element of it is in conflict with canon with continuity or even just style and tone so that's the the tricky part once i've gotten a manu- uh, an outline approved manuscript for me usually takes anywhere from 10 to 12 weeks depending on the length of the manuscript. Once I'm sort of chugging along, I'll do about 10,000 words a week. So on a 100 to 120,000 word manuscript, that's 10 to 12 weeks of drafting probably followed by one to two weeks of polishing. So yeah, for me, it's about the same length of time as for Dayton three to four months. uh, You know, usually, you know, once you get going and then the post-production takes a few more months so for me it's probably about the same about 10 to 12 months from concept to publication which is very fast in publishing yeah
2: and now we have the audiobook element as well because they've made a comeback in recent years so there's working with the audio side of the house to uh, we work with the producer and sometimes the voice actor to develop the pronunciation guides you know for all of our crazy star trek terminology and alien names and planets and all that make sure that they're saying them the way we think we heard them right in our head right. that kind well, of I mean, thing. They
4: used to do that on the scripts for uh, TNG and Deep Space 9 and yeah. Voyager. There were pronunciation guide pages uh at the front of each script. They don't do only, that anymore but that was standard practice back in the 90s. They
2: still do it for the Discovery and Picard scripts. They have pronunciation guides for the alien terms but oh they started um, doing that again. Yeah.
4: Because all the discovery scripts I was seeing when I was noting them they didn't have that,
2: yeah, they do now and it's, um well, but so now it's it's' just basically working with the guy to do all that, so that's that part's fun because when I first started doing this, we weren't the audiobooks were only for the big name, hardcover. High-profile titles, not the stuff that you and I were doing. So now everybody gets an audiobook, so it's it's a lot more fun.
4: And you get an audiobook, and you get, you an, get audiobook. an audiobook.
2: That's right. I
3: gotta I gotta ask you guys both because growing up liking Star Trek, one of the things that was always so intriguing about the show is you realize as it went along that you were just seeing one story in a vast universe, mm-hmm. and when another starship would show up, whether it was the Defiant or the Constellation or You watch The Ultimate Computer and you meet Bob Wesley and all that. As a kid growing up, you're like, oh, my God, this universe is gigantic and I'm only seeing a little bit of it. And one of the things that I loved and one of the things that made Star Trek novels so attractive to me is that the authors were clearly not just taking science fiction concepts, but they were exploring the Star Trek universe, which I think any Star Trek fan really wanted to do, which is why sequels to episodes were always so appealing because we knew the story would continue on like what happened in the mirror universe after Kirk said you know find a reason for sparing the Hawkins and make it stick what happened and you know we never know but we know something happened and and so part of the great appeal I think at least for me of reading Star Trek novels was the Star Trek universe was greatly expanded You had science fiction writers that were writing science fiction stories and bringing them together with Star Trek so Star Trek stories were everyone was as big as Star Trek the motion picture you could have concepts like V'ger not V'ger itself but I mean concepts of that cosmic nature in the books Mm -hmm. and they became Star Trek stories that you could only get in novel form they were never going to be movies they were never going to be episodes so the greatest versions of these novels were Star Trek stories where you could only get them in book form. And and I have to ask the two of you, when you go about, I mean, David, you know, because I've said this a million times on Twitter, your mm-hmm. three-volume Destiny trilogy is not one of just my favorite Star Trek stories I've ever read, but it's just a fantastic science fiction story in general. And then you used everything that was going on. There was a, a novel continuity that was post-Dominion War, Uh, post-Voyager, returning to the Alpha Quadrant. There's so much stuff going on. And you guys, especially in the last 10 years, 15 years, you've carried on a continuity within the novels that have moved beyond the shows. And how did you guys do that? And how did you approach... That and one of the great joys of these novels is they're so much richer than just telling another episodic tale of our main characters. You've completely expanded what a Star Trek story can be, and you've also uh, brought them into uh, much more adult realms than we might ever see on a television show. And and how do you
4: go about doing that? With great difficulty and great care. Uh, I mean, Destiny was a weird case in that it it represents almost three years of work from when I was first approached to when it came out. Uh, it was a very long, hard road. Uh, when I was approached, all they had was the image, uh, a painting by Pierre Drolet of the uh, Columbia crashed in the desert and a caption saying it was found 200 years after it was lost and it was found in the Gamma Quadrant and nobody knows how or why. They said, can you build an epic trilogy out of this? Not being a fool. I said, yes, of course I can. Um, Then I got my remit. They wanted 24th century shows. They wanted no TOS because we wanted to avoid stepping on the bad robot movies that we thought were coming out. And they said, all right, go forth and create. And I, I think we went through four or five different story iterations uh, that got rejected again and again each time I was told well that doesn't work because I had to please two editors not just one because I was coordinating with Marco Palmieri who was running the Deep Space Nine post finale story arc and then I had to deal with Margaret who was running the TNG books in the post finale post nemesis era uh, and also running the Voyager books so I had to please two editors and the licensor And I kept getting feedback like, this isn't big enough. Uh, There's not enough focus on these characters. This story concept isn't big enough to justify a trilogy. Uh, And so I had to keep coming up with, all right, what's bigger than this? What's grander, more epic than this? And uh,
3: 7,000 Borg cubes invading the Alpha Quadrant.
4: Eventually what happened was I said, all right, well, let's look at your publishing line that you've already committed to. Let's see what books you bought and if there's any storylines you've already set in motion. And that was where I saw the through line with the Borg. And I said, look, whether you guys intended to or not, you let the 800-pound gorilla out of the cage again. You probably didn't realize the significance of what you were doing when you did it. But now that that thing's out, you got to deal with it. If the Borg are back, we got to deal with that. I said, there's your epic story. And they said, all right, persuade us, write an outline and sell us on it. And so I'm coming up with like, you know, I'm, I've got diagrams, I've got things I'm sketching on long sheets of paper with arcs and timelines and recursive timelines and uh, wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff going in every direction. And then I'm trying to come up with different dramatic conflicts. And I'm thinking about stuff that was going on in my life at that time and in the lives of some of my friends. And that's where we find, for instance, the Riker Troy miscarriage storyline. I'm like, what's the most heartbreaking thing you can do to people who are trying to have a family late in life. And I was like, well, there you go. I mean, that's a heartbreak of a storyline. So I've got that. And then you've got Picard with his uh, rhyme of the ancient Mariner, you know, I'm cursed. I never should have started a family what an act of hubris I've brought this on all of us. You know, how dare I try to be happy? How dare I try to be selfish for a moment? Uh, Cause he's obviously got his guilt survivor complex and it was just one thing after another and realizing that they're in a story of that scale, there are opportunities for lots of human stories like Lana Kader, the kid, uh, what's their species name? Anyway, it doesn't matter. She's the uh, security chief on the Aventine. She gets into a friendly fire incident during one of the attacks on a Borg scout cube or something guns down or gives an order that gets some of her own people shot. And she's got all this guilt and it's going to take Esri Dax to, you know, former counselor and now captain to walk her through it and say, it's called fog of war. You know, it happens. There's no malice here. You need to move beyond the guilt. And it was realizing that, you know, there's opportunity. Not every story has to be on the same level, but when you add them all up in the aggregate, that sort of glimpse of the human experience happening on so many levels in so many timelines. uh, I mean, still my favorite part of the whole destiny trilogy is when you go back in time with the four women survivors of the Columbia, uh, Hernandez, uh, Fletcher, uh, Dr. Metzger and, uh, uh, the communications officer, Sidra, And it's just about four women having to live in isolation uh, as captives, as prisoners. It's a very comfortable gilded cage, but it's still captivity. And dealing with issues like depression, uh, suicide, disability. Um, again, these were very human stories. So that was what we were allowed to do. When you've got all this room to fill in a book or in a trilogy, you have room to think on a bigger canvas than you do if you're writing for TV. TV, you got to be fast. You get maybe 25, 30 beats in an episode, and you're out. Is
0: it liberating for you guys to work on a show that has ended, such as Deep Space Nine and TNG or TOS, as opposed to a show that's still in production, where you're sort of more limited in terms of you can't go left, you can't go right, because the show's in production, as opposed to something where, you know, Deep Space Nine, where sort of there's an open canvas at this point
2: well yeah obviously um you know the shows when we were when nemesis wrapped up the next gen storyline and ds9 and voyager wrapped up their televised storylines we were given i don't want to say carte blanche but you know we were given a lot more lead on that leash to you know go see what we could do with those characters and situations as they had been left which to be honest, that's a strength of tie-ins in general is that they're able to explore things that the parent production could not for any number of reasons, whether it's budget or time or they just, you know, the, the, the writers have other ideas. And so they're moving off in a different direction and they leave things that are tantalizing, little plot threads, little avenues not taken that we can explore. And that's where I think one of the strengths for comics and books and, and other ancillary material really comes into play. Um, they let us have a tremendous amount of latitude with the twenty fourth century fiction for a number of years because you know it was never ever going to be revisited again ever. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and with the, and same thing with the original series. I mean, we uh, we I think the the TOS books are kind of their own animals still to this day. I think they're the one series that seems to just defy expectations for tie-ins you can keep writing five-year mission stories and people will still want to buy them and read them because for a lot of us that's star trek you know kirk and spock in their prime doing planet of the week alien of the week type stories that said we have explored you know the more expanded deeper storytelling in that avenue or you know in that plane too as dave explained with vanguard but for the next gen stuff they really let us run Uh, we were able to do things with the characters we would never have been able to do while the shows were in production um, and you know, so now we're experiencing a, a similar feel to the way it was when Next Gen and DS9 and Voyager were in active production. The tie-ins are supportive of their parent property, and so the people who are running those shows are, you know, they're going to get they get first dig at the at the trough in terms of story ideas, and they have ideas for the characters that they have not yet, you know, you haven't seen them, but they've got ideas for future seasons, and we have to make sure that any books that are going to come out in a year or two jive with that. So. Um, it's a dance, but it's, you know, it's not new. It's been the nature of tie since forever.
0: If you guys, uh, had a gateway drug of your work, what would you recommend to somebody who hasn't read any of the novels? And then also, what do you have coming out that, uh, you're excited about?
4: I'll let Dave take lead on that one. Well, I guess I would first ask what Star Trek do you like? Uh, If we're talking specifically about our work for Trek, if someone is a fan of 24th century Star Trek, such as Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, from my catalog, I would say try the Destiny trilogy. It's big, it's complex, it's epic, but it also tells you anything you need to know about the backstory to understand how the characters have gotten to where they are at that point. So it's a perfectly good jumping on point for the shared literary continuity. And then you can either go back from there and read stuff that happened before it, or you can just continue forward from there. Uh, If you're more interested in the original series era in classic star Trek of the sixties, I'd say try the uh, star Trek Vanguard series that I wrote with Dayton and Kevin. Uh, It's set in an era that will feel very familiar to fans of the original series but it's also going to feel like it has a more modern sensibility, a uh, slightly darker sense of real politic, uh, maybe a more realistic depiction of violence, uh, more complex character motivations, slightly less campy, uh, maybe a little bit less, uh, you know, antiquated in its uh, vision of say gender roles. Uh, so I think that Vanguard would be a great jumping on point for fans of TOS DOS. Uh, D- uh, ugh, cannot talk today. Destiny for fans of 24th century Star Trek. And what about you, Dayton? I'm I'm largely I'm basically
2: in step with Dave for TOS. I you know Vanguard is one of my absolute high points of doing this. Uh, it was its own level of fun within a level of fun that a lot of people don't get to have already. Uh, so yeah, if you're a 23rd century fan, I always recommend the Vanguard books because, like Dave said, it's it's a different. I think it's a more modern take on it, but yet still very respectful. Uh, we did a very, we worked very hard to observe and honor what the original show did in terms of, you know, doing our little tap dance, tango dance, if you want, with the canon and everything. So I think it, it largely stands as a very unique entry in Star Trek novels. Oh, uh, really good. 20- really, really. Thank really you, good. sir. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, uh, as far as 24th century, you know, the stuff that Dave did with destiny continues to have ramifications to books that we're writing right now. I mean, that those books came out a decade ago. Poor so I recommend a, what you did to Denver, man. Yeah. So, you know, anything somebody had the, to buy it. Somebody had to buy it. That was the dart. That's where the dart landed, man. Um, so anything like that, I recommend uh, I'm original series first. So my stuff, I did a couple of books where I brought in Gary seven and the, the folks from assignment earth and, what wove it around ufo mythology and the cold war one was called from history shadow i'm kind of proud of that one just because i had they let me off the chain for real on that one i got to play around with all kinds of stuff yeah you went crazy on that book or in that i had a lot of fun i I almost (laughs) expected a phone call but i didn't get that one from the dod never showed up (laughs) at least i don't remember them maybe they did the flashy thing on me um so yeah that's where we are with uh, yeah that one so um, there are a number of on ramps, I think, for the fiction. Uh, Dave's book, Destiny, Dave's Destiny books really do add a, a dimension to storytelling for Star Trek that I don't think we saw before, and we're still dealing with what he wrought in those books over a decade later. So, you also have to mention,
0: I mean, yeah, there you go. I want to know what you think, Rob, is our resident expert on. <laughs>
3: well, well, no, I just got to say, in terms of, 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 look, we've seen many, many sequels, the, the DC Comics Star Trek series when they were written by Mike, Mike Barr and, and Tom mm-hmm. Sutton was drawing them, even they started off with a giant mirror universe arc. Yeah, awesome. But to <laughs> me, the end all be all definitive mirror universe stories are in your duology. David, you, you cannot, anybody that wants to approach the mirror universe must read your two books. And you're even the books that you, the stories that, that, we I've done at
4: least four that are heavily set in Mirror Universe. I had the uh, Sorrows of Empire, right. which is the rise and fall of Emperor Spock.
3: And Rise Like Lions. Then writing
4: as uh, Sarah Shaw, I did uh, Saturn's Children in Obsidian Alliances, which is uh, basically the return to power of Intendant Kira. Uh, Mirror Universe is part of my DS9 Warpath mm-hmm. uh, novel. And then I did uh, uh, the... Let's see. Uh, I had a short story in the in the Mirror Universe anthology, Shards and Shadows. Mine was called "For Want of a Nail," and that yep. sets up that short story sets up Rise Like Lions, which is the Mirror Universe Revolution. The Terran Rebellion becomes an all-out revolution, and they reshape the political landscape of the Mirror Universe. And then I return to that Mirror Universe in both Disavowed um,
3: and the Section Thirty-One that, novel.
4: Section 31 disavowed, but also in, uh, cold equations, book two, we, uh, we see something that isn't ever explained, but we come back to it we explain it in disavowed, you find out that the element with what the brain are chasing in book two of cold equations, uh, actually hasn't happened yet. And it's a time loop thing. And I actually ended up explaining it later in section 31 disavowed and, uh, another great th-
3: book, by the way.
4: Oh, thank you. And, uh, Let's just say you haven't seen the last of the mirror universe. We're well, not done.
0: Well, and on that note, I want to thank, uh, I want to thank Dayton and uh, David for uh, joining us. Rob, happy birthday. I, I, I hope that you enjoyed your uh, little birthday celebration. This is great. I could do this for another four hours. Birthday,
4: you magnificent bastard. <laughs> when is your birthday, Rob?
3: It's May 15th.
4: May 15th. So actually uh, next week, a few days after mine.
3: Yes, but I don't I'm know what, 12. Yeah, when the show airs. So Oh, I see. Yeah. I see we
4: don't know when the show airs. Yeah. Well, for what, well, I have also, just for Star Trek fans, I have a Star Trek novel supposedly coming out August 11 uh, called More Beautiful Than Death. It's based on the Bad Robot films. Uh, that incarnation of Trek, I'm hoping that fans of those movies will pick up the book and feel that I did that era of Star Trek justice. I uh, I certainly tried to do my best to tell a good story and to have fun with it. And, Dane, you have a book coming out in June, I believe?
2: Yeah, I have an, uh, I have an original series novel called Agents of Influence. And it's uh, it'll be out at let's see, June. Well, unless they push it, it'll be June 9th. Uh, that's, you know, assuming that the coronavirus doesn't eat it or whatever we do. Uh, it's an original series, Five-Year Mission Tales, which is my sweet spot. Uh, whenever they ask me for something, that's what I go to. Uh, Kirk and the gang are getting into shenanigans.
0: Great. Well, thank you guys. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Robin. As always, thank you. Jared. I want to remind you, you can download the electric now app at your favorite app store where you can watch episodes of the glorious experts, along with the *430 movie best movies never made and many other electric now podcasts. And I want to thank producer Natalie Muscali and absentia our production coordinator, uh, Zach Raggetz, and of course, Peter Holmstrom. And until next week, we will see you keep on trekking. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Listen to Doctor Fauci and no one else. And uh... and give a hoot. Read a book. <laughs> give a <laughs> Anyway, uh, keep on trekking until next week. Keep on trekking gloriously, of course. Shh.